Today's episode of the Hot Forward Podcast is sponsored by Brewpacks. Brewpacks have been providing microbrewery supplies in small and manageable sizes for over 25 years, acting as agents and resellers for some of the world's best producers of ingredients, sundries and equipment. With some of the industry's lowest minimums and lead times, Brewpacks aim to make their products accessible to all. Partnering with Oushouse Engineering, Brewpacks have released their smallest can seamer at a cost-effective price, while also aiming to provide cans in the smallest minimums as possible to make the introduction into canning as easy as can be. Call Brewpacks today on 01709 That's 01709 or visit their website brewpacks.com. This is Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Hello Acid Heads, Pellicle Peeps and Sour Sisters and welcome to another face-plucking session on the Hot 4 Podcast. Barrel aging and mixed fermentation. Are there any two phrases that evoke curiosity and create excitement for brewers and beer lovers more than these? You'd be hard-pressed to find a brewer who is not fascinated with the art of blending beers stored in wood or mixed cultures of Brettanomyces and lactic acid, which spawn bacteria such as Lactobacillus and Pediococcus. Ooh, see it again. Lactobacillus. Mavaza. My first own encounter with sour beer was in an unlikely place in a format you wouldn't associate with the style, on cask down my local pub. And no, I'm not talking about a best beer that turned into vinegar due to spoilage, but an actual sour beer on hand pull. I vividly remember the guy behind the bar getting wildly excited about it as he pulled my pint, giving me the advance warning as he handed it over. It's different. As I took the glass, I was met with a pint that bared all the hallmarks of a crisp pale ale. A thick creamy head that you would need a snow shovel to displace. The sparkling yellow gold that looked like the warm summer sun on an early August evening. All served of course in a pint glass. But the flavour did not marry the appearance of the eyes. A distinctive flavour and aroma of pickled onion and barnyard goat danced merrily with a tart zingy finish. Even now when I try to describe sour beers to people I'm taken back to that first encounter. It was, as the bartender said, certainly different. I'm sure you've been on your own voyage of discovery when it comes to the woody and funkier end of the spectrum. Who hasn't enjoyed that sweet bourbon burn of a barrel-aged imperial stout or that lingering malted salty taste from a traditional goozer? Similarly, you've probably had your fair share of kettle sours gone wrong or even lambics that you've had to chug through on account of their leather goat flavour, telling yourself that you like it because a they're revered beer styles b they sell on ebay for over 100 pounds a bottle and c you feel like a fraud if you don't celebrate a good lambic with the rest of your friends on that note by the way i was at a bottle share at saint mars of the desert last year when someone brought a lambic everyone scored it in the nines and tens all except me who gave it three 
I'm telling you, the uproar nearly caused a riot. I simply stated after the jeering, I just didn't like it. I'm not sure whether Mr. Funk Dungeon himself, Jim Rangeley, ever really forgave me for that. Apologies, Jim, if you're listening. Sour, mixed fermentation and barrel-aged beers do hold a certain level of reverence among beer fans and I would argue are on par with even the best vintage wines and fine ciders. For a beverage that has been historically associated with the working classes, chugged down in pints and often devalued as merely a commodity item, our wild friends in beer have booked the trend, retailing with higher prices, presented in slender elegant glass bottles and evoke feelings of opulence. By virtue of these beers spending prolonged periods stored in wood, you just instinctively know that these beers have been crafted with care by people who are passionate about making them, not to turn huge profits, but as a labour of brewerly love. One such brewery who has grabbed my attention for their excellent barrel projects is London Beer Factory. Established in 2013 by brothers Ed and Sim Cotton, London Beer Factory found success as part of South East London's beer scene. Since then, they've grown to an output of 50 hectolitres a day from their 25 hectolitre brew house, with a team of six brewers producing 500,000 litres of beer per annum across a wide range of styles, including hazy IPAs, imperial stouts, lagers and more. Their Bermondsey-based barrel project serves house barrel-aged and craft beers across 24 taps and contains 200 oak barrels, all nestled under a Victorian railway arch, blending the traditional and the modern. Each release is a unique expression of time, place, provenance and attention. As you'll hear in our discussion on all things barrel-aging and mixed firm with brewers Brett and Braden, they even have a mobile cool ship, the UK's first purpose-built vehicular cool ship that travels around the UK capturing wild yeast and bacteria that naturally occur all around us. Every beer they make is a living record of the areas they visit and captures some of the essence of the friendships they've made along the way. And, like Newcastle United signing Alan Shearer from Blackburn Rovers for a record-breaking £15 million in 1996, remember the conversations you had down the pub, or in my case, the school playground about that one, former Fuller's brewmaster and legend John Keeling has recently become a non-executive board member to the brewery, an addition who will bring vast amounts of knowledge and experience with him to ensure London Beer Factory will only grow in stature and quality over the forthcoming months and years. If only the kids in the playground were talking about that transfer. But that'd be a bit weird because kids aren't old enough to drink. But seeing as you're old enough to enjoy that privilege, it's time for this week's This week's brewery shout out goes to my good friends at IMP Brewery who sent me a range of cans and barrel aged beers, very in keeping with this week's episode. The brewery and tap room are based in Gravesend, Kent and they are quite locally focused providing refrigerated deliveries of their tasty, tasty cask and keg beers throughout Kent and South London. And this year they're just starting to see the fruits of their barrel aged program with a range of bottle releases coming up including plenty of imperial stouts and their first mixed fermentation beers 
Brewer James Hayward was very, very kind to send me a variety of cans and bottles, including their Hoppy Red, a Hazy IPA and a Session IPA, and two of their Barrel Age beers, a Barrel Age Saison, which I've yet to tuck into, and their Speyside Barrel Aged Imperial Stout. Now, usually I'd crack this open and taste it live on the podcast. And the studious among you will have noticed there wasn't a show last week. And hands up, it's because I've been working eight days a week flat out whilst decorating a house and travelling backwards and forward between my mother-in-laws. So I caved in and I've already drank it. Not on tape. Not that we use tape anymore. Sorry. But I can tell you, it was amazing. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a straight-up imperial stout. There's no peanuts, not pecan to be seen, no salted caramel, no lactose, no nothing. Just straight-up boozy, rich, thick bourbon engine oil. Oh, my goodness. It was amazing. And you can buy it on their website. I can wholeheartedly vouch for Imperial as a brewery that you should definitely check out. And fortunately for you, James and Charlie have very kindly offered our listeners a 10% discount from their web shop. So you can go and buy Speyside Barrel Aged Imperial Stout all for yourself with a 10% discount. So head over to imperial.beer where you can pick up a variety of beers delivered direct to your door using the code HOPFORWARD. That's HOPFORWARD in capitals and taste the barrel age goodness for yourself. We have partnered with Brew School to bring you a featured job from the UK brewing industry each and every week. And this week's featured job is with none other than Utopian Brewing. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with Utopian Brewing. They are a young and ambitious brewery specialising in the brewing of traditional lager in mid-Devon. They bring a fresh approach to the independent brewery scene by introducing a range of interesting and original craft lagers made entirely from British ingredients in a brewery ultimately powered by sustainable resources. Their unfiltered lager was recognised at the SEBA Awards 2020, taking the National Bronze Award in the Keg Premium Lager and Pilsner category and the Southwest Regional Premium Lager of the Year. The role they are looking to fulfil is for a highly motivated brewer to join their small fledgling team. You must have a passion for great lager and have some knowledge about the techniques used to brew them. The successful candidate will have significant experience working in a brewery and will be confident to work independently to a high standard in all areas of production. Formal brewing education and qualifications are preferred. So head over to brewing-jobs.com where you can apply for the job by sending a CV and a covering letter and go and work with this absolutely fantastic brewery doing some amazing things in a very, very scenic location. Before we crack open today's discussion with Braden and Brett from London Beer Factory, I have some exciting news. If you're a member of the British Guild of Beer Writers, on the 14th of September between 6 and 8pm, I will be running a course on building a brand. The session will unpack some of the misconceptions behind branding before exploring what a brand actually is. The aim of the session is to understand why branding is important for beer communicators, consultants, broadcasters and professionals in the industry and how to maximise the effect of your brand. 
In this two-hour session, we'll cover the following topics, what a brand is and isn't, what components make up a brand, the differences between brands, brand identity and personal brands and which is the best fit for you, how and why people buy brands before they buy products and services, and how to use your brand for maximum effect to increase revenue. The session will be interactive, there'll be time for discussion and Q&A, and it's suitable for both novice and experienced beer communicators. The session only costs £20.95p and is limited to 20 attendees, so don't miss out. It's going to be a great course, I can, t- I can guarantee it on my own podcast. <laughs> so there you go. Um, head over to beerguild.co.uk forward slash events and book your place today. And if you like Hot Ford and the work that we do, make sure you follow us on all the socials at Hot Ford Beers. Check out our website, hotford.beer, where you can find a range of services to help your brewery and your beer business get ahead in the beer industry through branding, marketing and consultancy. And join our Facebook group. If you head over to Facebook and search for Hot Ford, you'll find us in there, growing community of brewers and beer professionals. So make sure you join the community over there. Okay, so very excited about this barrel-aged episode. I was sent a couple of beers, actually, from London Beer Factory, um, and they didn't arrive until the morning of the episode. Brett and Braden were very specific about being served at the right temperature. So, unfortunately, I wanted to record the tasting notes in the show, but we couldn't quite make that work to crack the beer open. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to taste the beers and sort of slice it in so a convenient location you'll hear me crack open beer and taste and give a little review um, but it wasn't recorded at the time of recording this over Skype apologies about some of the background noise as well they are based in Railway Arch like more or less every brewery in London and you can try to grab overhead but it's all, it's all part of the effect so let's crack open at long last this barrel episode with London Beer Factory talking all about barrel aging and mixed fermentation. I'm going to wait for the train to stop. <laughs> Today on the Hot Ford Podcast, I'm joined by Braden and Brett from London Beer Factory. Hello. Hey, mate. How you doing? I'm all right. Thank you. It's sunny, so I can't complain. How about you guys? How are things with London Beer Factory? Yeah, really good, thanks. It is nice and warm here in London, especially in the railway arch. Yep. That's it. But now it's going, going well for us, thanks. Good yep. weather, lots of beers been quite busy but yeah we're doing well yeah so what, what have you been up to of late and and how has the pandemic kind of affected the brewery have, have you seen much of a change because of it or yeah massive change uh we obviously have we didn't fill kegs for about three months yeah and the canning line is uh getting a hammering but luckily we have that yeah totally uh, and we luckily we had opened our own web store like a month before the pandemic right just lucky timing and we were really uh yeah really lucky to have some good support on the web shop mm. um bottle shops as well and like a couple months after that bottle shops uh picked up where we have a uh, supermarket account so we've done all right so um, today I want to look at the topic of barrel aging. Um, as I think anyone would agree, it's a source of endless fascination for, for brewers. Um, so firstly, before we look at um, particulars, can, can you tell me how you guys got into barrel aging and mixed fermentation in the first place? And what was it like learning those fundamentals for the first time? I guess the first time I got into it was at Beaver Town. I used to work uh, 
over there, mm. and they have a giant Tempest program. So the fundamentals of like uh, getting barrels ready to be filled with beer, emptying them, packaging into bottle. So I learned, learned a lot about that. Not not really about the the mixed fermentation side. Right. That I sort of uh, went out and did on my own, but just using using the internet really and talking to other brewers. Uh, started homebrewing, doing mixed firm stuff, uh, and then kit started here like two years ago. Right. Uh, basically, just learning, speaking to people, just constantly telling myself that I don't know anything and should just try find out as much as I can. I uh, I got into to barrel aging uh, while still in Australia a couple of years ago. Right. I was working for a brewery called Wildflower. Uh, which was entirely working with a uh, wild culture of uh, mixed fermentation, kind of like mixer bugs of wild yeast and, and bacteria. Uh, and kind of learnt my, cut my teeth and learnt my trade uh, doing that for the best part of a year. And then mm. moved to the UK, met Brett, and Brett had kind of established the barrel project down here. Uh, came on to help out for a little bit and then eventually ended up uh, yeah. Lucky timing for both of us. Absolutely. Yeah. So for any of our listeners looking to start barrel aging beers for the first time, where where should they start? So, I mean, can you cover things such as like, what you know, where you source your barrels from and what to look for in a barrel, you know, um, different ways to prepare and sterilize them, how to package the beer from wood and uh, stop it staling and just all that kind of thing. Just like, because uh, I, um, I worked in a brewery for a while but we never, it was all like mostly traditional cask and bottled beers. Um, so when there was no, not a barrel inside, but it was when I go to my friend's breweries around the corners and they had these barrels, it was just like, oh, just, I, I want to make those beers. So I've never had any experience with it. So I, I'm interested as I know a lot of our listeners are. So take, take yeah, through the process from start to end. From a, from a kind of small scale perspective, if you're just starting to look at doing like one or two barrels or like looking to source some from somewhere, it's heavily dependent on the beers that you want to be making. Right. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, we, like being mostly mixed fermentation along long periods of aging, we're looking for pretty much well-used wood, uh, usually ex-wine uh, barrels that have been had a few turns on them. Most of the oak has kind of been stripped out uh, in those turns. Yep. So we're looking to, we're looking to keep beer in there, uh, fermenting and maturing for anywhere between kind of eight months to, to three years. And during that period of time, oak tends to kind of settle in and be quite overpowering pretty quickly. Yep. Uh, whereas if you're looking to do like imperial stouts or other styles of beer that require, you're looking for that kind of character. You may be looking for kind of bourbon barrels, whiskey barrels, something with a with a heavier t- a char and something that's kind of got a little bit more of a boozy character mm. going into. With, yeah. those, with those wine barrels, uh, w- uh, would you look for a particular type of wine? Or even I think just a colour or? We're, particular, we're looking for them as like maturation vessels, so we're not particularly looking for the wine character to transfer right. over. Um, more importantly, we're looking for size particularly. The smaller the barrel you go for, uh, the smaller the staves, the bigger the openings and the more oxidation you get. Uh, so we're looking for barrels that are in good condition, they're nice and tightly uh, kind of hydrated, so they're sticking together. Uh, yeah, they're smelling good, they haven't got any kind of like obvious mold growth. As long as they're smelling good and they look all right and they look nice and tight, typically we'll go for something like that. Uh, typically trying to get them, for our beers in particular, we're trying to get them from from wineries or from whoever was using them previously as quickly as they have been empty. Yep. Uh, the sooner the better is great. Uh, the longer they're left to dry out, uh, 
the more difficult it is to bring it back to usable uh, mm. and more problems that can arise kind of further down the track. So are you going to visit these wineries and places to actually physically see and smell the ba- and, and get a sensory experience of that barrel or is it lit- are you literally just going on what people are telling you when they're selling them? Uh, that would have been ideal. Uh, but none of the barrels that we have here are freshly emptied wine barrels. Right, okay. They are reconditioned, retoasted. Um, they still have, uh, they're all ex Bordeaux. They still have, you can see they had red wine in them. Um, but no, we went through a procurement company uh, at most of the breweries in the UK using Alex Satsang, is, is his name. And he, he's got relationships with all the wineries in France, Italy, Portugal. Um, but you can get, um, you can get freshly emptied anything, basically. Anything, any wine spirit that's been in a barrel, you can get you can get that freshly emptied. I think typically they'll uh, recondition the barrels and tighten them up uh, prior right. to sale as well, so they're generally looked after pretty well. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I think maybe in the early days they must have got some bad shipments, but everything that I've been in contact with has been really good. All come with hard bungs in them, so nothing was getting in the way during shipment. Mm. Um, they all been in really good condition. Fantastic. So, I mean, so when you get the barrel to the brewery then, um, what's the process? Because I know, I know you have to, um, I don't know the technical name for it, like basically soak it first. Um, uh, so we refer to it as hydration. Or we, we, we use this like a mixed uh, device that has a spray ball that kind of rotates and, and blasts anything that is inside the barrel. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it also has a steam function. So first thing we'll do when the barrels arrive is give them a good rinse, get rid of any dust that's in there, any particulate that's kind of built up over time. And then we give them a good long steam, which uh, is one of the best parts of the job. It smells delightful. Uh, (laughs) So we'll give them a few hours on the steamer, constantly alternating between rinsing and steaming. Mm. And then we'll typically give them, we'll fill them with uh, with hot water overnight. which also helps to kind of uh, suck a little bit more oak uh, character out of the barrels and kind of neutralize them a little bit more. Uh, and provided they they uh, survive the overnight 24-hour kind of water test, uh, we're typically kind of deeming them appropriate for beer from that point. Yeah, feel free to fill on. Yeah. So when, when when you're filling it, I mean, I presume you you just fill it like you would a big, very big cask beer. And yeah. then, um, and then bring, bring it up and leave it for a while. So, I mean, t- talk us through the period then uh, when it's in the barrel um, with the what, what do you call the little nail thing that you? Uh, we call it a vinny nail, or okay. just like it's just a, a stainless steel nail. Right, uh, just like you're literally a nail then. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's pretty pretty simple. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No fancy terminology. Uh, but yeah, so we'll like we'll brew up here. We bring it back to the barrel project. We ferment in stainless steel vessels with our uh, wild culture of yeast that we've caught from kind of greater London area. Uh, once that initial kind of 10 to 15 day fermentation uh, has kind of slowed down and, and pretty much finished up, we will uh, cap that tank and, and essentially pressure transfer mm. uh, the sanitized hose loop uh, straight to barrels. Exactly like filling gas. Awesome, great. Them in. We have uh, breathable kind of fermentation bungs, so any CO2 that's produced from that point onwards, uh, a little pin will lift in the bung, uh, the CO2 escapes, and then that kind of falls back into place and stops any other uh, kind of non-inert gases getting into the bungs. Yep. Uh, and then we uh, rack them and stack them on the wall, get them uh, looking all pretty, and then from that point, like Brett and I, that's what we've been doing today actually, we kind of every month will work our way through do some sensory on them, see how they're tasting as they're going along. Uh, we'll take 
specific gravities just to see how much sugar has been been used uh, and we'll also take pH reads just to see how the acid is kind of uh, building up along the way. Yeah. So going back a step then, when you're putting your brew schedule together, look at your grispel and your hop schedule and all the rest of it, like how, how are you putting that together knowing that it's going to get barrel aged or you're going to blend the fermentations because obviously you, you, you get, you're picking up a lot of character on the the latter end of the process like but going into the process like how is it how do you manage to kind of make sure you've got the right thing going into the wood in the first place cool so we like when we're designing a recipe we're trying to keep in mind uh process and ingredients that are going to last really well on the shelf uh obviously if you were to take an ipa or something that's heavily hopped uh and put it in an oak barrel for a long time it's not particularly going to stand up very well under oxidative processes yes so we'll design our grist around having it relatively high adjunct. So we're looking at uh, a large portion of wheat or spelt or rye, something that's uh, not going to be as fermented as easily as like a normal pilsner or pale malt. Uh, from the hop perspective, we age our own hops on site here. So anything that's left over from uh, the clean brewery, uh, when contracts finish up for the rest of the year, we put them into our aging facility, which is some hessian sacks uh, on top of our cool room, uh, and a nice dry, kind of uh, warm environment just to kind of get those aging at a quicker pace. Uh, and then, so we'll hop with those aged hops just to give it uh, a little bit of, uh, there's a little bit of cheesiness to it, there's a little bit more of a herbal character, uh, kind of definitely lends itself to these kind of bits. Right. But yeah, we'll, uh, we'll have a pretty high adjunct grist for, for mashing in. Uh, we'll typically mash in very hot, Try and get those uh, large chain sugars to stick around for a little bit longer. The higher, the larger chain sugars we have at the end of that mashing process, typically it gives the, the yeast something to chew on for a little bit longer in barrel. So it's not finishing up uh, really early and then just kind of sitting around uh, with no fermentation. Mm. Uh, that, that continual fermentation helps to scrub extra oxygen that we don't want uh, and helps to kind of feed the Britannomyces over the course of kind of 12 to 18 months. Yep. That's interesting yeah. what you said about the hops because uh, I, c- I can actually sort of almost smell that kind of oxidised skunky hop smell when op- when hops are old. I wouldn't, I wouldn't. I mean, it's, that is what you're describing, isn't it? Yeah. So they'll typically go through a process of taking like newer, fresher hops. They'll go through a cheesy isovaleric stage, uh, and then we find like in extended aging it generally will pass through that and you end up with just kind of like a drier more herbal kind of uh Mm. situation because we're not particularly looking for heavy cheese like you would like kind of imagine with a gers or a lambic traditionally but yeah so after it passes through that we kind of uh we just see more of a herbal product particularly so as you're sampling the the beer um from barrels um you know to, to make sure it's it's tasting as you want it or choosing the best ones like do, do those individual barrels have different qualities are you, are you picking some, yeah some, absolutely yeah. so like we'll do we typically brew 2000 litre batches yeah uh, which will translate into about eight different uh 225 litre barrique style wine barrels uh and we notice almost immediate change those those barrels are kind of some of them are a little looser some of them are a little tighter some of them kind of the dynamics of it makes a large difference when you're talking with a, about a, like a slow microoxidative uh, maturation period. So we'll see the same batch of beer differentiate into kind of at least like eight different kind of at least like six to eight different like particularly different barrels. You get yeah. a couple that will taste relatively similar, 
especially in the early days they do taste uh quite alike but especially by the 10 to 12 month kind of range we're definitely seeing completely different beer yeah. Yeah. yeah last i think it was last february i was up in huddersfield at magic rock um doing an interview cool. with richard burhouse and after we'd finished there was a lad there um racking off all their samples from their different barrels and um he, he asked for a second opinion so i was like I'm, I'm on hand to give a second opinion and i was i was amazed actually how um how different these beers tasted you know and, and how so, some of them were so much nicer than the other ones i mean what what happens to the the, the ones where you just like actually we don't we don't feel like that's quite right for release what what happens to that beer does it just get discarded or well the the cream of the crop we we like to just blend as is yep. release it as a single barrel release or we as part of like uh unfruited unhot uh blend which is now uh dawn is our main sort of core range yep blended barrel aged blonde wild ale uh, the ones that are, that are good but not great, we'll tend to use them, either dry hop them or, or use them with uh, fruit re-fermentations. Um, so yeah, they, they might not be as complex, but they're still nice. Um, yeah, free of fault, but still probably not the complexity or particularly sometimes like beers that don't have the aroma we're looking for in particular. Uh, that nice kind of like body and acid line might go really well in a fruit blend, but on its own as a standalone blend of a blonde or a dark beer, just lacking that aroma kind of rules it out for that particular blend. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when you come to blending then, is there a particular technique you're doing with that or is, is it literally just trial and error until you've got the right ratios yeah. and all the rest we're, of it? Uh, we're making it up as we go along. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> the best way. Yeah, just uh, an idea, sometimes an idea will pop in our head as we're drinking it. Um, I think yeah, we the, the basil. Uh, the basil one, we tasted it. He had talked about putting basil into something, and we we tasted a, one of the barrels, and it just kind of looked at each other, and it was it was the right one. Sort of like grapefruity, nice bitterness, nice acidity. Um, other ones will there's like fruit seasons here in the UK, so we know we're getting in raspberries or apricots, and we'll look for the barrels that will complement that fruit. Um, but yeah, it's sort of just uh, we don't have that much. So yeah, we so. kind of we kind of have a two-part process. So we have the monthly barrel checks where we do our sensory and we do our testing. As we're going through that, we'll kind of look at each other and certain barrels that stand out or scream basil or scream fruit or are particularly interesting. We'll earmark them at that point and we'll put a little mark on our uh, on our paperwork that that might be good for something like this further down the track. Mm. And then as we get uh, to a point where we've got a little bit of tank space and we're looking for a new release, we'll kind of have a chat. We'll uh, have a look through our notes and see uh, which of those barrels kind of stood out for this particular use. Uh, have a bit of a conversation and then we'll pull somewhere between kind of like five to ten samples that we think might work well. Um, we'll pull those into glasses, cover them up to kind of stop the aroma dissipating pretty quickly. And then we'll uh, essentially just uh, make a small mini blend uh, of those beers, see how that looks, uh, argue with each other for kind of half an hour over who thinks what's good. Uh, <laughs> And then yeah, make a decision from that point and yep. pull them out. Uh, pull them out of oak. Great. So, talk us through that then. So, talk us through the actual. Because I'm presuming when you when you're doing those mini blends, you you, you literally do it by the milliliter, so you, you can scale that up. Like, do, do, does that scale up nicely on a linear scale? Because I I found with with brewing. Uh, particularly when I when I went from being a home brewer to professional, th those scales don't those recipes don't just scale <laughs> like that. <laughs> we found the, the the blending does scale up. Yeah, it does it right. 
we will we'll use a syringe essentially that's uh that's measured out so we'll take like you're saying just a temp like typically 30 mil to 60 mil of a, of a particular barrel yep and we'll keep those ratios uh true to what we're going to have as the final blend in terms of uh, in terms of barrels coming out we find it's pretty close there's there may be like a small amount of deviation yeah, yeah. but typically we we land where we kind of think we're going to land it's not a lot of cases where we kind of are well outside the ballpark. Yep. Yeah. And uh, once you've racked them to ba uh, from barrel to tank, there'll be a lot of change initially as they blended. Yeah. Uh, and then again, a lot of change as they bottled. But they'll come around, so you don't, you know, it takes three to six months to sort of get an idea of the final product. Right. So we've kind of become good at picking, like, we'll know it's going to go through multiple changes during those, like, uh, barrel to tank and then tank the bottle kind of processes yep. and we can we can kind of almost pick and anticipate how that's going to work and what's going to kind of end up good and what's probably not going to go through those processes as well kind of again making it up as we go along mm. yeah cool so as i mentioned earlier i'm going to slice in uh, this little virtual tasting of their beers so it would have been great to do this with the guys there but obviously wasn't to be but i just want to say a massive thanks to Braden, brett and to james who's their marketing manager for organizing the beers that headed my way so i got a couple of cans um one was a pink lemonade hibiscus goozer i think um that was lovely like amazing um i got this barrel aged mixed firm saison re-fermented on grapes which i'm sure i've had this before if i if i have this was fantastic as well but I'm not going to crack this open now because that's quite a large bottle for a Monday night, which is when I recorded this. But I was quite intrigued by um, these two, which I'm going to taste on your behalf. Um, I don't think you can get these on their website. I've not seen them. So if you're in London, probably best to uh, pick them up there or ask your local stockist to see if they can get hold of them. Uh, but this too, there's a, a blonde wild ale, which is 6.2%, and then a dark wild ale. So you've got Dawn, which is obviously the blonde, and then you've got Dusk. So... No idea what these are going to be like. Cracking them open. Moving the Mac just in case. Because, um, dare I say it on the podcast, I had a bottle of Goose Island Matilda recently. Cracked it open on my sofa and it gushed on me everywhere. Serves me right for having Goose Island, I'm hearing you say. Uh, but there you go. So, here it goes. So, this is the blonde one. Got a nice light kind of grapey smell to this so let's pour that so very elegant shaped bottles these oh i've got to tell you this little story so um i remember this is years ago now there was a story in um it was on social media i think of um an mp that was in london in a pub and they had henderson's relish which is uh sheffield's secret sauce and it admittedly the bottle looks a little bit like the imperins and it's got an orange label like the imperins anyway this politician was going on about these um how do they put it cheap replica brands and he was talking about aldi and that kind of thing and he's you know he had no idea that hendo's is like cultural staple institution in the north and he said 
quote unquote, even the shape of the bottle is the same. So I remember going online and being like, oh yes, it's bottle shaped. It has a neck. And, um, you know, slam this guy on social media because, you know, oh, the bottle was the same shape and stuff. And uh, lo and behold, how it comes back to bite you. I now admire the shape of a bottle. So there you go. Right. So, so it's got a nice grapey kind of smell to it. Mmm. Wow. So, wow. It's got a nice, sharp, very tart, crisp flavour. It is almost wine-like. Mmm. See, I could see anybody that doesn't like beer, you know, and is into, like, wine or ciders and things, drinking that. And loving it. Oh, so, wow, I mean, that's an exceptional beer. The good carbonation level on it as well. I find with some uh, barrel-aged beers that they're not carved enough, but this is this is, this is is really good. Well, thumbs up on that one. Man, the flavour just goes on forever. <laughs> For the whole of eternity. Um, that is very, very refreshing and very tasty. And shame it's not in a, a 750 mil, actually. I could drink ample amounts of that. Right, so I am trying these side by side. Just for maximum effect. Plus my wife's drinking half, so there you go. Right, so this is the dark one. This is 5.8. It's more of a, like a raisiny kind of smell on this one. Look at the colour of that, beautiful, almost verging on being red, slightly darker than red, but... Ooh. Oh, the nose on that's nice. Yeah, raisins, cherry. Let's taste it. Oh, wow. There's a lot going on there. Deep, really deep and complex. I almost want to say it's bordering on, almost like a Flanders red, but not quite. But it's looking in that direction. It's kind of looking across the channel <laughs> in that direction. Um, yeah, that's these are great. So I'm gonna I'm just gonna try them side by side again. So so yeah, that blonde is really acidic and sharp in a good way. Kind of cuts straight through, and then the dark one, really deep, and yeah, more mellow. Very, very different beers in lots of ways. But yeah, I mean, those are um, those are fabulous beers. And if you can get hold of those uh, from London Beer Factory, make sure you do um, lovely bottles, lovely flavour, and just, just stunning examples of mixed fermentation beers. Cheers. <laughs> So just just talk us through getting it out of the wood then. So I presume you're pushing it out with CO2 into your tank. Like uh, 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 when it's going into tank, are you, are you, are you priming it then? Or what, how, how are you priming it so it's got some carbonation? When it hits cool. So yeah, like when we, we've decided on a blend, we use a device called a bulldog, which is yep. essentially 
say a 90 degree angle onto a pipe, much the same as you've probably seen in terms of filling like casks before, just like a stainless steel uh, pipe. And then it has a little uh, adjustable bung. Yep. Uh, you can slide up and down on the pipe to kind of fit the dimensions of the barrel. Once you're, once you're happy with it in there, you lock it into place, you add the gas through a little import valve, uh, lock it all in, turn the gas on, which then pressurizes the inside of the barrel. Um, just a little bit, enough to kind of create a, a siphon flow uh, out of the barrel and towards the tank. Uh, the tanks we, we treat just like any other brewery. Uh, we clean them, sanitize them, purge them with an inert gas. Uh, and then we'll gently gently transfer those barrels over to, to the stainless steel. Uh, and from that point, we'll let, depending on the size of the blend and, and what we've done to it previously or what additions have been added, We'll let that kind of homogenize and settle in those stainless steel tanks for like anywhere between a week to a couple of weeks just to make sure that the gravities are steady and that everything is kind of ready to go. I right, getting yelled at by the bar staff. Oh, okay. uh, but yeah, from that point, when we're happy with it, we know it's stale, it's not moving anywhere and it's, it's tasting quite good. We will uh, add sugar. So we essentially, we'll, we have uh, a couple of stainless steel brinks that we use for a few different uh, reasons in the brewery. One of which is to kind of keep our wild culture in yep. and stored in uh, from batch to batch. The other one we use will add our measured kind of dosing sugar as you would for, for home brewing, essentially. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And then, so we'll add the sugar to it, we'll boil it on a little burner uh, with a little bit of water, boil it, sterilize it, wait till it's nice and steamy, we lock it in, uh, cool it down, and then again, we'll purge that with CO2 again and use that gas to, to push that into the beer gently. Uh, and we'll do a couple of runs of beer in and out of that stainless steel container just to make sure it's thoroughly mixed through the beer. Yep. We take a few gravity reads from different areas on the tank just to make sure it's nice and even throughout the tank. And then again, as we're kind of, uh, as we're moving that into keg and into bottle, we'll take a few uh, sporadic reads just to make sure that that's all steady the whole way through the process. Yep, that's that's a good point because I remember when I first started bottle conditioning on a larger scale, um, quickly discovering that um, it, the sugar doesn't mix well unless you mix it well, you know. <laughs> um, so, so some bottles were released were like, oh, these are great. And then there was some which were really flat and I just couldn't figure out for the life of me at first why, you know. Yeah, um, it's so. quite a viscous little solution of sugar. So yeah. it doesn't like to, to mix that well, but we've got it to a point where we're kind of getting accurate reads quite regularly now. Yeah. So that's, that's a nice little Yeah. So I've got a couple of listener questions. Uh, the first one comes from James from IMPEA. Uh, he says, do you ever reject barrels from suppliers? There seems to be a big swing between good quality and dry or characterless barrels. I mean, what, what in what circumstances, if a barrel doesn't meet your expectations and standards, would, would you send it back or? I mean, I've never been in that position that I've needed to send any barrels back. But if it came in, uh, if I was looking for a like fresh wine character or spirit and it came in dry, I'd probably reject it. Uh, any other barrel, any sign of mold, any excessive dusts, any open bungs during shipment, I'd probably reject them. But no, we've been we've been lucky with the people that we use that haven't already had that issue. Yeah, particularly here we've been we've got quite a small space in terms of uh, in terms of breweries. Um, we've been pretty much at full capacity since I came on board. Mm. Uh, but previously 
Uh, at my previous job in Australia, we would uh, we would be constantly getting fresh wine barrels in on a regular basis, and it would come down to smell is like is your best friend. You want to be you want to be getting them still wet. You want to be uh, smelling them, making sure they're kind of like they're still whiny. They're not giving you any kind of uh, ridiculous acetone notes, any kind of aldehyde or like any kind of chemically notes you don't really want. Yep. Uh, again, acetobacter and acetic acid is is a huge killer. And as soon as those barrels are empty, uh, the risk of that kind of ingraining itself in the wood and going to work is is pretty high. Uh, so limiting those times, smelling for that, which obviously is quite quite obvious. Vinegar is not a not a subtle uh, characteristic. So your smell is the best one. Uh, just an obvious inspection. Like bring yourself a little torch. Make sure you get a light inside the barrel. You're looking for. You want tight staves, you don't want any obvious nicks or kind of banged up barrels. You want them to be looking like they're in good condition. Yeah. Typically, like smell and sight is your, is your best friend. Um, but yeah, I mean like most wineries will, will ditch barrels because they're fearful of Britannomyces, uh, which obviously in our case is, uh, is a little tick tick in the ledger. Uh, we're quite good for that. And that's, that's quite obvious if you've, if you've made a lot of mixed ferment beers, you can smell the, the phenolics that are typically associated with that. Yeah. But yeah, everything, everything that we do sensory for to avoid in our beers, we'll kind of essentially apply that to what we're looking for in yeah. a barrel. Uh, next question is from uh, Matthew Curtis from Pedicle. Um, he wants to know what research or practices are you engaged with uh, to reduce um, the presentation of THP in your barrel aged and mixed firm beers? Uh, at the moment, uh, anecdotal really. Uh, I've done some reading on THP. Um, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there. I haven't read much sort of concrete evidence on THP. Right. Um, we figure that present it, it sort of becomes present with oxygen. So once we transfer from barrel to tank, and then from tank to bottle, we see a huge spike in THB. Uh, and then, I mean, Braden will, will uh, sort of explain probably the science behind it, but basically fresh yeast we found uh, just cleans it up over time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like I know there's, it's relatively new in the beer world, obviously, because uh, we're seeing like a, a spike in, in mixed fermentation projects and, and beers being released onto the scene. Uh, from my understanding, I know like some bigger breweries in the States, like uh, New Belgium, have been doing uh, some scientific, scientific kind of chemical analysis on how it's produced. My understanding and my teaching, and by no means am I a chemist, uh, is that some forms of wild yeast and some forms of lactobacillus uh, in the presence of oxygen can can create THP. Yep. Uh, and we find, like, you see it a lot in the kettle sour industry uh, with those kind of stagnant 24-hour acidification processes. You see maybe a little bit of oxygen coming in, uh, some THP being produced. But we notice that our wild yeast and our house culture will clean that up. So if we see... Typically we see it, we don't see it in the early days of fermentation, but we'll see it when we introduce oxygen uh, in small doses. So when we're moving from barrel to tank, sometimes we'll see a, a small spike. And then absolutely when we, because we gravity fill uh, into bottle uh, and, then, uh, and then we naturally condition in those bottles and kegs. So when we move the beer from tank to, to package, we see a spike in the first kind of, typically the first couple of days, the THP will spike. Uh, and then over the course of the first month, we see it slowly decrease, uh, being broken down by what I assume is the wild yeast or the Saccharomyces. Uh, and then typically by month two, it's, uh, it's completely cleaned up. 
and then we uh, will condition our beers further into into month three just to make sure that they're all safe and, and ready to go. Yeah. Um, once we're happy sensory wise, uh, we'd be uh, we'd love to have a, a GC uh, gas chromatograph in house to be able to chemically ana- like analyze the amounts of THB that's in there, but we don't have the cash for that. Yeah. Uh, so sensory <laughs> is the way to go. Yeah, I mean, how how long uh, should you or can you leave a beer in wood before it has a detrimental impact on your beer? Cause, like I know like whiskey, you know, there's the evaporation rate each year. Like, does that happen in beer as well? And, Definitely. It, it depends on the beer that you're making. So we see long aging periods for things like lambic and spontaneous beers. Uh, I think part of what makes that a viable process is that you've got a slow, consistent fermentation going on throughout that period. So you've got some oxygen scrubbing uh, going on through that, which is combating the, the micro oxidation of the, the ingress into the barrels. Uh, if you're doing a hard and fast, quick fermentation, your fermentation finishes up and then you put that beer straight to barrel and there's no further fermentation, I think you're looking at a kind of shorter period of time uh, just because the uh, the less fermentation in barrel is going gonna, is gonna to kind of lead to more oxygen ingress and then uh, from there you kind of you're noticing the detrimental effects a little earlier uh, we will like higher alcohols obviously prevent that a little bit uh, all of your kind of like preserving tactics uh, that you would trade a finished beer like uh, definitely weigh in during this period but we we judge this entirely on our sensory so if we're noticing something start to turn or something uh, dropping aroma or something kind of spiking in terms of an off flavor we'll uh, typically take action at that point to kind of stop that going anywhere but everything down to the make of the barrel if the if the staves are quite tight and the barrel's in really good condition you're probably getting a lot longer of an aging time out of it but mm. we kind of treat each barrel individually and uh try and pick it when it's at its peak yeah um, once it starts to go downhill we know we've got to move quickly otherwise we're going to lose that barrel and nature of the game being uh wild fermentation is that we do lose a portion of beer um, we're not afraid to to dump beer that is not up to standard we're, we're quite willing to i'd prefer to put that down the drain and start again and tarnish tarnish the name or kind of release something to the public that's that's not up to scratch yeah. yep. so um just changes tack slightly um you, you guys have got a cool ship um which um it you know elevates you guys into the realms of brewing royalty um, like so um I don't know about that. <laughs> so i mean it, it seems to be coveted by a lot of a lot of breweries um but for, for any of our listeners that are just like what is a cool ship you know we're like what is it and what can you do with them and then what's the most interesting beer you've put through your cool ship so far uh well just yeah, to answer the first question, cool ship is uh, a stainless steel, for us a stainless steel vessel, uh, sort of the shape of a bar that can hold 750 years. Uh, we'll put boiling hot words in it and it'll cool overnight. So they used to use them hundreds of years ago to cool wort. Yep. But, uh, since then, upgraded how they do that, but this is the uh, sort of lambic style uh, way to cool wort. And we will, so we've only really done one beer to it, 100% spontaneous. Uh, I know other breweries in the UK are pitching yeast, but yep. at the moment we haven't done that. Okay. And ours, ours, is, uh, ours fits on the back of a pickup truck, so we've taken it around the country, done some collaborations and sort of seeing what the UK has to offer. Right. 
Sorry, when you said taking it around the country, for some reason I thought it had beer in the bag. <laughs> I'm just imagining it on the back with it sort of the worst sloshing around. <laughs> Trying well, we to get some wild yeast from the air. Uh, no, we have a lid. We will typically brew at someone else's brewery. Yeah, yeah. Fill the cool ship, put the lid on. We'll drive out to a nice campsite or somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, open up and camp for the night, have a few beers, have a really good night. Um, we've done we've done it two or three times together. It's a good excuse for a boys trip. Sounds sounds like it. <laughs> for for work, quote quote quote. <laughs> uh, but then yeah, we'll drive drive back to the uh, to the brewery here in Bermondsey and put it straight to barrel. Just start steaming barrels and put it straight in. Fantastic. For a long, long fermentation process. Yeah. yeah, we're pretty pretty lucky. We can seal it up. We don't see any detrimental effects from that. Uh, just kind of homogenizes whatever uh, microbes have settled into it overnight. Uh, we bring it back and then just gently rack it into, into oak, and then a couple of days later, some some spontaneous action, hopefully. Nice. So uh, cha- changing tack a little bit, then it was announced recently that John Keeling, uh, formerly brewmaster of Fuller's, again, brewing royalty, if you will, has been appointed as a non-executive board member for London Beer Factory. So f- firstly, a massive con- congratulations. I imagine that's a little bit like signing Bobby Charlton or something. <laughs> um, so uh, w- what are you guys hoping that John will bring to the table and how do you see him playing? Um, I mean, these... Playing this out in the long term. Was, uh, was definitely from you know from the owners, Sim and Ed. Uh, didn't we had no say in, in, <laughs> right. in that sort of movement? But I mean, John, John, everyone knows you, John Keeling is. Uh, he'll bring a lot to the table. So, yeah. Um, look forward to working with him. For sure, an absolute like wealth of knowledge in the industry. And I mean, like, I mean, the best the best tool you can have in in the kind of pursuit of making good beer is. Uh, Having people around you with experience in, yep. in a multitude of different situations, uh, and yeah, just like widening your your birth of knowledge. We're constantly like, I mean, the brewing industry is uh, is pretty small. Everyone particularly kind of knows each other. So the more opinions you can get on something, uh, the better you are for it. So yep. it's nice to have such a such a legend on, on board for for advice kind of purposes. Amazing. So what what are the expansion plans for London Beer Factory? Um, hoping to expand. Yeah. Hey! <laughs> like, what, what would you? How, how would you like to expand? Just more capacity, or have you got your eye on uh, more equipment? Well, we are at 100% capacity at the moment at the brewery, at the main brewery in uh, Gypsy Hill. Uh, we just got two new tanks, uh, but essentially we're looking to move site. We need. We've outgrown our current facility. We've just taken on more warehousing space, more storage. Right. Uh, but we need we need to move facility and and get a get a bigger brew kit and a, a better brew kit yeah uh, and better better equipment yeah so la- last question then where, where do you see um, barrel aging and, and mixed firm beers as far as beer styles heading over the next five years what would you love to see as far as innovation is concerned I'd love to see more mixed firm cans. I think we're gonna we're gonna sort of explore that uh, later this year, maybe next, maybe early next year. Mm. I want to see more breweries having a go. Um, as far as styles, not that many. <laughs> I I'm loving seeing the the increase in people having a stab at spontaneous beer. So yeah. obviously this this industry is and making mixed firm beers is a big investment up front. 
you kind of you're not seeing any return on that product for the first 12 months at the very least uh, so it's exciting to see more people willing to give it a crack and like I mean like any kind of boom of, of a style of beer in the industry the more people doing it uh, and the more competition the better the product overall becomes because people are exposed to a lot more flavor profiles and a lot more beers. You can mold your, your opinions and, and uh, your kind of favorites over that. And then uh, people learn more. The quality of the beer goes up. Uh, competition is good, I feel. And I like, I mean, there's some incredible examples out there. And we're just starting to see like in the UK, a few producers making more spontaneous beer, which I think is even more of an investment. Yeah. And even higher percentage of dumping that product because so many more things can go wrong so it's uh it's impressive to see people diving into the deep end and uh having a good crack at it and i mean i've tasted some like incredible examples and uh, like i'm looking forward to yeah drinking more good beer yeah Yeah. hopefully you can sort of uh head towards the american style not the american style but just there's so many breweries in america making spontaneous and mixed fermentation wild ales and the more that more that do that in the UK means more consumers are drinking them. Means yeah, the market expands. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. like if the less we have to explain what the product is, and the more it becomes a staple in the industry, we'll uh, definitely enjoy that as well. But yeah, amazing, Brit. Well, how can people get hold of your beers? At the moment, um, ask your local bottle shop to stock us. Uh, but uh, all our beers are uh, sold out of here at the Barrel Project and on our web shop. Amazing, brilliant. Uh, we, they are limited. They are limited, so they do tend to sell out pretty quickly. Uh, yeah, and definitely, definitely come down to the Barrel Project. I'm here Monday to Friday. Uh, definitely stick your head in and say hi. We have a takeaway fridge ready to go. I'm quite happy to have a chat and, and sell some takeaways and go from there. Nice. Well, no, I know the next time I'm in London, I'll I'll pay you guys a visit. Definitely. Yeah, man. Drop by, have a couple beers. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks for being on the show. Not a problem. Thanks for having us. Cheers, Nick. Today's episode of the Hot Ford Podcast was proudly sponsored by Brewpacks. Brewpacks have been providing microbrewery supplies in small and manageable sizes for over 25 years, acting as agents and resellers for some of the world's best producers of ingredients, sundries and equipment. With some of the industry's lowest minimums and lead times, Brewpacks aim to make their products accessible to all. Partnering with Oushouse Engineering, Brewpacks have released their smallest can seamer at a cost-effective price, while also aiming to provide cans in the smallest minimums as possible to make the introduction into canning as easy as can be. Call Brewpacks today on 01709 780 That's 01709 780 or visit their website brewpacks.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot Four podcast this week. Don't forget, we're here to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. So hit the subscribe button for more insights into the beer industry. Connect with us at hotforward.beer or through our social media channels at hotforwardbeers. Until next time, cheers. That'd be a bit weird because kids aren't old enough to drink. But see, oh, what's...
This is where the wife walks in when I'm podcasting. I've got the record button on. <laughs>